What's up, headbangers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast, and our website, talklouderpodcast.com, where you'll find links to our merch and all of our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today we are honored to be joined by a guy who unquestionably altered the history of heavy metal. I think it's fair to say uh, our guest today is Brian Slagle, the founder and CEO of Metal Blade Records, the label that famously gave us the first commercial recordings of Metallica, Slayer, Rat. I mean, it goes on and on. Armored Armor Saint, Saint, Trouble. Lizzie Borden, Cannibal Corpse, Fate's Warning. I mean, go, 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 baby. Go on and on and on. Yep. Uh, Black and Blue. A lot of history uh, and your record collection probably owes a serious debt of gratitude to Mr. Slagle. Can't believe we got him on the show today. And he was so cool to talk to. Just a really chill dude. He's one of us. Um, he said at the end of the interview that he can't believe that the time went by as quickly as it did because the conversation was just flowing and so natural uh, because he's a nerd, just like us. He's a heavy metal rock and roll nerd. Uh, that's, good. that's the best kind of nerd there is. Yeah. And obviously he took his passion and turned it into an empire. And uh, he's got two books. Uh, the second one just came out. It's called Swing of the Blade. And the previous one came out in 2017. It's called For the Sake of Heaviness. Both of these books chronicle Brian's uh, life and career and uh, stories and anecdotes with some of the artists that have been signed to his label. They're uh, both really great. No yeah. Question. Lars Ulrich wrote the foreword to the first one and Carrie King wrote the foreword to the second one. So if you had any doubt about uh, Brian Slagle's Rolodex. <laughs> or, or even credibility. Yeah, yeah. These are people he was able to just, you know, text, call him up and go, dude, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had a lot of fun talking to him. Of course, uh, he first came on most people's radar with the Metal Massacre compilation albums. Um, I don't know. I think that's up to 13 or 14 or something at this point. Yeah, I can't. I haven't looked at any kind of discography. I want to say that's why I'm, I mean, I'm embarrassed at the the plastic sleeve on the protect, at least a protective cover is wasted. But the, uh, my first pressing of metal masker one is in quite good shape. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, as he mentions, you know, the, the records, the compilations were basically just an offshoot of his fanzine. Um, that just happened to catch. Yeah. The new heavy metal review. If for those headbangers out there who have the, uh, the very first Metal Massacre comp, uh, the first record to ever come out on Metal Blade, is um, it's pre- says present presented by the New Heavy Metal Review, which was just his his fanzine. I have to give a shout out to uh, John Perez from Solitude Eternus, uh, Rotting Corpse fame, uh, there in the DFW area, uh, who sent me this. Uh, it's been a few years ago now, but. I have to admit this is my only copy of this, but I, the reason I ne- I needed it, I begged and cried to, f- to find a, as I love the Starfighters, and he's got 
I mean, who knows who the Starfighters are? Well, you know what? Brian Brian Slagle knew who they were before anybody else did, it looks like. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, by the way, the Starfighters guitar player, Stevie Young, he's in this band called ACDC now. True. Playing, yes. His, his <laughs> uncle is Angus. His uncle's over there playing guitar. Yeah. Or, yeah. Maybe it's not his uncle. His great uncle. Who knows? Anyway, yeah. Uh, so, so Brian Slagle. We talk about metal blade bands all the time. We, we do not preface the bands with, oh, they're a metal blade band. As much as we probably should give the credit to them, uh, the first three Slayer records were on metal blade. The first three Trouble records were on metal blade. Um, you, uh, Fate's Warning, uh, you, you, it goes and goes and goes. He's been this sort of guy that has been able as a fan to catapult on some sort of fan base level, much like in this interview with Brian, you even recall that it's kind of like the tape trading uh, scene was in the early eighties. And he was a, a vital part of that. Uh, I'll just say on the West coast, him and Ron Quintano, who's was in the Bay area and Brian being down in Los Angeles. So him like accidentally meeting this kid, Lars Ulrich one day, uh, kind of changed it kind of threw everything into motion because obviously uh ron was friends with lars as well at the same time how they met was probably tape trading so yeah. this this whole like networking thing going on pre-cell phone computer everything analog licking stamps and a, tel a long distance phone call on a landline caught an hour and he talks about this was up to a hundred dollars or more which i'm well aware of thanks mom wherever you are for paying the phone bill because i was i was calling my favorite rock stars all the time who i had their phone number um yeah so today just i'm all over the place because obviously i'm excited um brian is uh he's he's still kind of an unsung if you know what i mean yeah. I feel like he's still underground. He's well, not. He's not to me. He's on our radar, our entire fucking heavy metal lives for the past 40 years. But when you really think about it, you know, no, he's not really the household name, but people own Slayer's catalog. And they don't right. know who Brian is, right? Right. I just love the fact that here's a guy that took his passion. You know, you and I have a passion for this stuff. All of our listeners have a passion for this stuff. Uh, but very few of us turn it into a monster and and grow it into an empire. And Brian has, and he's done so with integrity. Uh, he takes a great deal of pride in ownership of the the name Metal Blade Records. There's been opportunities for him to sell out to a major, and he hasn't because it's important for him to maintain the integrity of his vision. And I think that's fantastic. And the bands that launched from his label, Metallica, Slayer, Armored Saint, and others, uh, still hold him as a pers close personal friend. There's a friendship there. There's a camaraderie there that I think is very rare in the music business. And I think it becomes, I think it's because of a genuine sense of loyalty and a genuine sincerity to 
uh, push this music forward and they appreciate each other's love for it and what they contribute to it. Big time. And this is something that we didn't really get to talk about with him that I will mention that it's uh, it's it's a point. It's a recurring point in, in the new book, uh, Swing of the Blade. Um, you know, when bands start on Metal Blade and then they get the major deal and then the major deal doesn't work out so hot for them. Guess who they call? They call Brian and Brian is open arms. I'm here. I've been here the whole time. You you leave and come back as many times as you want. Says a lot. Also, I want to piggyback that with, did you know, David, did you know, uh, the, the name of the label, Metal Blade, is like a, he, well, he talks about it a little bit about, well, we, like when he started Death Records, the crossover side of Metal Blade, it's like bands were afraid to sign to a, a label that was called Metal Blade. Yeah, it's too metal and we do something that's not, people are going to think we're just like, you know, Man of War or something. Yeah, yeah. No, they're not. But I understand what you, you know, DRI doesn't sound like man of war. The point is that he's ready to work with you because he believes in you no matter what. So uh, without further ado, really a pleasure and an honor, as Dave said, for us to talk to, uh, I could almost say kind of a, he probably will hate this, kind of a, a hero, at least an underground hero. Yeah, uh, who who is championing something so much bigger than all of us. And it goes back to that nerd thing, you know, where he's the guy that was spending his lunch money to to make a fanzine because he loved heavy metal. He wasn't this. He was charging a dollar. It's not he's not he didn't make any money. You know, he doesn't care. Uh, I, I, I can't I can't say enough about it. Super excited today. Brian Slagle, CEO heavy metal fan among many hockey fan among many other entrepreneur uh <laughs> former record store slave uh mr brian slagle today on the talk louder podcast <laughs> there we can you hear me yeah yes sir how are you good thank you how are you guys great First yeah. off, thank thanks, thanks. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty rad. We're both super, super high on this. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Honor to have you with us, man. Uh, Jason and I say it uh, quite often that our record collections are often shaped by a lot of the artists and bands that we admire. But I think we might owe the biggest debt of gratitude to you. <laughs> uh, and you're not even a musician. So I think that yeah. speaks volumes about your contribution and, and the reach of your work. He wrote some lyrics one time. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> kind of really? like, like you, Dave, you wrote some lyrics a few times. <laughs> I did. Demon, Demon Flight. Yeah. Demon Flight. Where is that? So that was the either third or fourth release we put out. A friend of mine who was a bass player, actually Frank Zappa's band, uh, when I was putting together stuff for Metal Maskers, uh, he had a band. I said, yeah, I need a band. Why not? And then he said, I got free studio time. I could probably do an EP. So I'm like, all right. But he didn't have a lyric for a song, so I wrote the lyrics for one song. Wow. Nice. I was going to ask because, you know, you've obviously built this empire out of your record label, but I was going to ask, 
if you also play? Are you a musician of any sort? I play nothing. nothing. I, I, can, I can barely do a 4-4 four, four beat on the drums. And that's about the extent of it. I, I can't play. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I, I, I couldn't play. I tried, but I have no talent at all for playing an instrument. I, I can totally relate. Uh, I'm a music freak myself, and uh, I realized early on that I was never going to be the guy on stage. So my way of staying involved in the scene was to become a journalist and write about it. Um, so I totally get it when you have the passion for the music, but maybe you're not going to be the musician. You find another avenue to participate and still be a part of it. Basically, yes. Yeah totally relate to that the uh the the <clears throat> the many many hats that you've worn over the years uh is a bit is a bit staggering when you just kind of think about oh well he's a musician too and he does it's like do you feel like you you've worn enough hats <laughs> yeah, i'm trying to check on check them all off right you know the the, the bucket list of, of things to do uh, that I certainly never thought I would do. The only thing that I'll probably never be able to check off is is playing any sort of instrument on any sort of a record. I've done background vocals, but uh, that's about as far as it goes. You, you and Dave are becoming the same guy. Yeah. yeah. Same. Yeah. Same, same dude. I noticed uh, when I was doing my research, uh, there were so many things. It's like I, I usually try to contain my questions and have some sort of sequential theme. But with Brian, there's just so much that he's done and something new and interesting was hitting me at every turn. And I just went, you know what? I'm just going to put some notes down on paper. And if I miss something, I miss something because you're never going to cover it all and we'll make the most of it. Uh, but I did uh, enjoy the fact that uh, we do have some commonalities. Um, you share a birthday with my son. Number one, you're a Valentine's baby. Nice. There, there's yeah. not a whole lot of us, so that that's good to know. He yeah, must good, he must be a good kid. Hopefully, he's a great kid. He's a great kid, kid, man. Maybe one day you'll sign him because he's got a lot more musical talent than I do. Never <laughs> know. <laughs> he's and, become, he's quick becoming a great uh, player and multi instrumentalist. Uh, I think his heart's drums, don't you say, Dave? With that yeah. new, new yeah. drum kit, you just saved your lunch money to buy him. Yeah. <laughs> it was more than lunch money, but yeah, yeah. And then Brian and I also share the opinion that. Uh, the number of the beast by Iron Maiden is the greatest metal album of all time. Well, that that's incorrect. No, uh, okay. It's the greatest album of all time. Oh, I love it. I love it. So why is that? Because I fell in love with that record the minute I heard it. It came out in 1982, and I'm 56 years old now, and nothing to this day has topped it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of, I mean, first of all, you know, Iron Maiden's my favorite band of all time. And they just, to me, encapsulate everything I would want in a heavy metal band, just from the, the music to the lyrics to the imagery to, you know, to Eddie, just to everything that they do, you know, live. They're just, everything is, you know, I can't say that anything is wrong with them, especially in, in, at that time and place. And the interesting thing about that record, you know, you guys are old enough to remember this, is that when Paul Deano left, a lot of people were not very happy that Bruce was going to replace him. And furthermore, when Number of the Beast came out, a lot, I'd say 50% of the Iron Maiden fans were like, I don't like that. I like Deano's stuff better. I don't like the new record. But I was a huge fan of Samson, which was Bruce's band prior to being in Iron Maiden. So I, 
I already was a big fan of his voice and thought I thought he would be perfect in 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 that record. And you know, that bands, if you look at the history of, you know, any you know, you pick any great band or artist really, uh, usually the third record is kind of when they they hit their stride. Second and third records are the ones where they really hit their strides and kind of kind of I don't want to say peak because you know they've put out a lot of great music since then, but yeah. they kind of find their way, I guess. And that's kind of that was the thing for that maiden album to me. I just did. I, the songs were tremendous. The imagery was tremendous. Bruce sounded phenomenal. Martin Birch, who I think is the greatest producer ever, you know, made it sound incredible. And just, you know, the songs are just, I mean, you know, how be that aims, but still my all time favorite song. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it was just kind of everything just fell, fell into place on that record. These yeah. are quips. These are quips also. Uh, I'm, I've, I've got like five more pages. You can tell I've been busy. I've got like five more pages in uh, in your latest book, uh, Swing of the Blade, of course. And I'm just like every pretty much every chapter. I'll, I won't say every page because, well, yeah, I could say every page. I'm just like uh, championing everything that you've got going on. Now, Dave's more of the sports guy than I am, but uh, just the in, in, in the in the first book, too, which I've just kind of thumb through this and i felt like i wanted to get into uh the newer book um solely because you and you sold me the newer book by words that were uh i i believe they were your words that the first book didn't really have you hanging out in your person person on person relationships with people in the bands that you've worked with whether you signed them or not which I thought was, I wouldn't say missing from this book, but just weren't covered because it was kind of, this is more like, you know, you talk about your mom. Yeah. You talk well, yeah, about, the, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, you know, the first book, uh, and, and again, you know, being an author is something I didn't necessarily think I would do, although are we we also share uh, the I thought I was going to be a journalist as well. You know, I started the, the fanzine. I wrote for Kerrang. I wrote for Sounds. And I kind of thought I was going to be a journalist until I took this crazy uh, left turn. <laughs> but so I, I wouldn't say that writing a book was out of the out of my uh, range necessarily. But, you know, I didn't really ever anticipate something that happening. And then, you know, the, the opportunity came to do the, the history. And I was like, well, I might as well do it. Well, I still have some coherency uh, to try to tell the story. But uh, and, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me and, and, you know, quite humbling was, you know, the first book did way better than I ever thought it was going to be. And the, re the response and reaction was, you know, like I said, very humbling and, and really pretty amazing. Well, the one thing that everybody was asking for was like, you know, more in-depth stories about, you know, some of the bands. And they all wanted to hear more about obscure bands that, you know, we they didn't really talk about it. There was enough of a, of a momentum, I guess. And I got to our publisher and everything else, and there was enough momentum. They said, "Yeah, if you want to do another book, we probably be a good idea." So, uh, yeah. So, so I did this the second book, Swing of the Way, and yeah, it's more. Like you said, it's more. You know, there's a whole chapter on you know Iron Maiden, and there's a chapter on you know Fate's Warning and Armor Saint and King Diamond and Merciful Fate. You know, it's kind of more stories about about all of those bands and a bunch of other things as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um let's let's talk about um you you know like 17 and 18 years old 
were you already working Oz records at that point? At what point? Okay. What point did you start there? What point did you start uh, this fine piece of history here? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I was holding, by the way, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, Brian, I'm for our listeners and not watchers. I'm holding up the new heavy metal review of April of 1982. Uh, number eight, it cost a dollar and it has one of my favorite dirty old rock and roll bands, Starfighters album cover on the front. Wow. Let's carry on, guys. carry on, Brian. Yeah. So in, it's interesting because I was, I was hanging out with a few people last night uh, you know, talking about, you know, music and just listening to old music and stuff. And so I was telling them the story that, so it, when I was 17, it was 1978. And that was the first year that I had a car and I had the approval from my mom to go to concerts. So I can't remember if it was 78 or 79. One of those two years, uh, I went to uh, over 250 concerts. I went to everything, everything that was possible. Because I was also a bootlegger, uh, or as I like to call it, tape trader. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, sneak, sneak the thing in, sneak a tape recorder into the shows, tape them, and then trade them around the world to get more tapes of all my favorite bands. And at some point I did sell a few of them basically to fuel my record habit because I, you know, we didn't have much money and I was working at Sears, I think at that, I think when I was 18, I was working at Sears. So didn't have a lot of money. So the extra income, all I did was buy, buy more records with it. So I didn't really get involved in in anything like the fans that came out in 81 so i would have been mm. 19 i guess okay but uh what i was doing was going to a lot of a lot of shows and i was you know getting into you know slowly getting into the scene and it's well in 79 obviously when the new everybody metal thing happened that's when it really started to really start to get into it and you know the first foray of of the future i guess was my well my friend john at first uh, his chance meeting with Lars Ulrich in the parking lot of the Michael Schenker show in 1980. And we became very good friends because we were all into the new wave of heavy metal and, you know, all young kids. And luckily for me being in Los Angeles, I was able to get sounds, which was the big English magazine. And I was able to read about some of these bands and we had a handful of record stores would bring in a couple of things. So the three of us would uh, the three musketeers i guess kind of would uh, drive all over the place and try to buy uh, whatever we could of that of that scene so you know becoming friends with him and you know he he had just moved from denmark to to southern california and he had no idea that there were you know these other two kids that were into the same music he was he just thought right. you know he's going to be out of it so we we formed this friendship and of course that you know led to quite big things for him oh yeah uh, and you know reasonably good things for me as well. But that was the first thing, but I didn't get to the, so yeah, the first step was the fanzine that I, I started putting out in 1981. So we've been 18 at that point. And then um, start, and then the fanzine, and that kind of led into me um, writing for sounds. Well, actually that, the fanzine led to, didn't really lead to the record store. I just was, I, I was a record store rat, I guess you would say. I just would hung, hang out at all these record stores. There's a really great record store down the street from where I live in Woodland Hills called Oz, O-Z. And, you know, I would be in there all the time buying whatever I could. And, yeah, there there it is. Uh, <laughs> the full full page back cover of your own fanzine. Yeah, well, I, I had to. Uh, there was There's no some really thing. great stuff in this issue. There's a full ad for Black and Blue. I mean, the guys in Kiss, for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a bunch is, of ads for Motley in those. Yeah, and yeah. 
Um, so anyway, I, I just locked into getting the, the job of the record. So I, I talk about it in, I think, the first book probably. But, you know, my best friend was working there, and they were going to get rid of him, and they asked me if I wanted the job. So it's kind of like, I, I don't know what I do. It's, you know, my best friend, and I, I don't want to steal a job from him. So I thought about it for 10 minutes. I'm like, but this is my dream. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I started reading the record store. Then I was starting to write more for uh, First Sounds and then Kerrang!, I was helping to program the local heavy metal uh, radio show on KMET, which is the big rock radio station in LA at the time. And uh, yeah, and then you know, then I started to find out that there were heavy metal bands playing in LA, and that kind of led to the compilation album and the rest. So yeah, when you when you're sorry, writing, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave. You seem to be blown away that there was a band like you know near your relative's house by way of Sirathungal. Yeah. It kind of like shocked you that what what that's where well, I yeah up. I mean it was, it was they were such a I mean that's a, one of my favorite stories and, and I talk about it them in both books but yeah they were just this little band up in Ventura California Ventura California in 1981 was just this sleepy little beach town there was basically a one two way one row you know one lane one way and one lane the other way from you know L A or Woodland Hills where I was at up up there but I had my my grandmother and aunts lived up there. Never expected a heavy metal band would come from there. And then sure enough, this band Sirodong would put out a record on their own in 1980, I think it was. And we sold it in the store. And then we went on to work with them. And, you know, I always loved them and thought they were really great. But they never fit into the L.A. scene. Never really fit in anywhere. Because yeah. uh, really, I mean, you have to listen to it. It's progressive and kind of there's some hippie quality to it, maybe. But it's still very, very metal. But they've had this crazy renaissance for all these years later. All of a sudden... I just out of nowhere, I would see kids wearing Sirithungal shirts at European festivals in like 2004 or whatever. And I was like, wow, that's really crazy because I always loved them, but I didn't know any, but, it, but the, all these Europeans first discovered them just through, you know, the fact that you could listen to pretty much anything musically you wanted to. And they just discovered them. It kind of led to this big cult following. And even people that didn't like them in the first place, like my good friend Monty Connor, who was an AR guy from. Roadrunner Records, you know, Sal Salvatore and, you know, a, a ton of amazing bands. And he didn't like them at all. He sent me, God, I forget when it was, probably 10 years ago or something, but he sent me this no note. But, like, and I was completely wrong on, on Sir Bumble. They're amazing now. I love everything. <laughs> it just, I guess time, they aged well and time came around. I think that you're, you're, once you grow up a little bit and, you know, I only like this kind of music or this kind of metal, I, I missed out on so much cool shit because I was, I had blinders on, you know, for, for a while, if it wasn't Merciful Fate, Slayer, Metallica, Yada, you know, Megadeth, whatever, keep going, Thrashy, Exodus, whatever, and, you know, Dark Angel and just keep going, uh, Hyrax, whatever. I wasn't into it. And then I realized one day I just went, boom, and I was like, man, I've been, che I'm cheating myself out of so much good shit. And I believe that that the the renaissance and the resurgence and the 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 newer versions of these older bands have resold the old catalog uh repurposed your parts of your brain that you were just shut the fuck off for so many years and i feel that's a beautiful thing 100 percent, 100 percent. i was yeah. i was never that guy like i was you know from maybe i mean i didn't really grow up in a music household or thing i, I you know my I stepdad for a couple of years and he was into like johnny cash and jerry reed so that was kind of my only real musical thing and you know my mom 
played the piano and sang at church and you know just but nothing out of the ordinary yeah. uh, so i my music thing was kind of all over the place you know i got really into Elton john then i got kiss and i got acdc and then you know all the heavier stuff obviously but sounds, i kind of like sounds everything. familiar that sounds yeah. very familiar so but i always liked everything so in the metal world i always thought it was was really i didn't like the fact that you couldn't like Slayer and Queens were at the same time. It's like, well, they're yeah. both great bands. It doesn't matter that they're not doing the same thing. But there was a lot of boundaries in the metal world all the way really up until Faith No More. Faith No More, I think, was the one that kind of shattered everything. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody could like them. And now you could open up to saying, like, oh, well. And then you find all these people that were closet fans, you, know, you know, big fans of, you know, Slayer Metallica. They were closet fans of all these other bands that, yeah. you know, that, like, actually, like Queensrack or something. So, yeah. Uh, but I always liked everything. So that's why the Metal Blade, we have a crazy variety of roster. We have you know, everything from, you know, Mother Feather to, you know, Cab Corp. So it kind of goes everywhere. I feel the cross, the word crossover, like you were there when that word kind of like, sort of like, you know, cracked, cracked open the egg. And I saw a lot of that going on down in Texas and in that you know, shit between 82 and 86 and, and, and even later, I just saw that start to slowly crumble and become uh, unbelievably huge. And I believe that crossover is still happening when you kind of think about, uh, you know, the late 80s and early 90s with bands like Faith No More, like you mentioned, because it's like it's, it's kind of metal and it's kind of funky and there's heavy keyboards and there's riffage everywhere. And Jim Martin just he's playing yeah. metal guitar amidst this hurricane. Yeah, so, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned the word crossover and that, you know, DRI, which is one yeah. of the bands we signed, that was the title of their whatever third or fourth record, I forget which one. So they kind of, I get, they didn't coin the phrase, but they kind of, you know, put it out in, into the public. And it was funny because, you know, I love DRI and COC um, and they're two, you know, punk bands in the mid 80s. I, I went to both of them and said, hey, I'd love to sign you guys. Said, well, we can't, we can't sign with you. I said, well, why not? This is because you're, the name of the, of the label is Metal Blade. You guys are a heavy metal label. We, we can't do that. Because this was still a time in the mid-80s where punk rock and, and heavy metal were not, not friends. Yeah. At all. I grew up in L.A. watching punk. I went to all those L.A. punk shows, Black Flag, The Go-Go's, Ball of Voodoo, the Dead Kennedys from San Francisco would come down every weekend. They're my favorite punk band, X. So I, I loved all that stuff. So I loved the punk stuff. And, you know, Slayer and Metallica specifically – um, you know, Anthrax, like all the big four, you know, all the thrash bands all love punk. And that, I think that that element to what they were doing made them a little bit more unique. And they love, I mean, I saw DRI because Slayer knew who they were and they opened for Slayer once. And that's when I went to sign them. So anyway, um, long story short, uh, I said, well, what about if I start another label with a different name? Would you sign? And they said, sure. So that's when I started Death Records. We signed DRI, COC, Dr. No, The Mentors. Uh, Perfect Slaughter and uh, Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, yeah. Started. Super fun time. Yeah, I I was going to ask you about the Goo Goo Dolls because I am a huge fan of the Goo Goo Dolls and specifically the stuff on Metal Blade Records. Um, I remember a buddy of mine, Danny Hoekstra, turned me on to the Jed album, and I thought it was the greatest thing I ever heard. And from there, I went to Hold Me Up and my favorite Superstar Car Wash. And at that time, you know, I was familiar with, you know, the Slayer and the Metallica stuff that you're putting out and, 
and the merciful fate. And you're you're known, like you said, as a metal label. And the Goo Goo Dolls, to me, especially, well, definitely at that point in their career, were more of this scrappy barroom, you know, barely keeping it together punk rock band. And so I was going to ask, you know, how did you come to sign them? Were you looking to expand your roster or or what? How did the Goo Goo Dolls come onto your radar? Well, there's like there's no rhyme or reason to anything we sign. It's just if I like it, we'll sign it. It doesn't really matter where it comes from, what type of music it is, what type of anything. It's, it's kind of more or less the, the same way today, although the, the staff has more autonomy to sign stuff as long as I approve it. Well, the Google Dolls, um, so Mike Faley, who's worked at Metal Blade forever, is from Buffalo, New York. So he was uh, good good friends of a lot of people in Buffalo, New York, and, you know, the uh, master tracks where the, the Goos were uh, recording. He was friends with the engineer there. And then also... Billy, with, Billy Sheehan's roommate, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. And still, Mike still manages Billy Sheehan to this day, actually. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, so... Then uh, William Howell, who's now known as DJ Will, uh, was an A&R guy at Metal Blade at the time, too. And he, at the, at literally at the same time, had they had both kind of discovered the Goo Goo Dolls within, I don't know, a week or something. They, separately, I think it was. So they came to me and said, hey, you know, this band from Buffalo called the Goo Goo Dolls. And, you know, they played me their stuff. And I thought, this is great. Let's do it. So we, we ended up signing them. And I, I, mean, I love those guys. They were the early Goo Goo Dolls, those records that you mentioned, the Jed Hold Me Up, Superstar Car Wash. They, such great records, and there's so much fun live. One of the most fun live bands ever. They were just so and great guys, and just super fun. But we kind of felt that you know there's something here, like like they could really kind of go beyond. And it's funny because in the last week, I've talked a lot about the Goo Dolls with a couple of things that I'll mention. Like last night, I was talking with a couple of friends of mine who, uh, one guy who's a manager of a bunch of bands, lives in Vegas that I hadn't met before, and we. We had a similar transition, a similar trajectory in music, like same favorite bands, same times, all this sort of stuff. So we're talking about the Goo Goo Dolls last night and, uh, you know, how much he loved them. And I was telling the story, <clears throat> so maybe pre-pandemic, so right before the pandemic, like four years ago, I was watching Sunday Night Football on uh, on NBC and, and they the Buffalo Bills were playing. So they played like a bump track out of old Goo Goo Dolls. I had to rewind it for a minute. I think that's old Google dolls. So I rewound, I go, oh yeah, it's something off Superstar Car Wash. And I hadn't listened to that record in probably 10 years. So back and listen to that record. And first of all, it's great, uh, if I say so myself. Yes. But second of all, it sounds so much like the Foo Fighters. So uh, much like the Foo Fighters. Like, Holy cow. Yeah. So uh, next time I see Dave Bro, I gotta go, so Google dolls, tell me about that. <laughs> so the, the Foo Foo dolls. Well, yeah. Yeah, there was Google another. Fighters. Another one of your signings that uh, I always thought was curious and even more so because we're from Texas and, and and from Austin specifically and we're friends with these guys. What do you remember about oh, Johnny Law? Love them. So we were uh, that was early 90s and we were at, you know, we we had done this deal with Warner Brothers. So we're the major label. So kind of, uh, you know, made our horizons a little bit a little bit broader in terms of the bands that we want to sign. And I love stuff like that. I love that band. And they were one of those bands, like the wrong place at the wrong time, basically. They, I think if they would have come along three years later, because I mean, they were more or less the, the Black Crows before the Black Crows were the Black Crows. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting thing about that record is the producer on that record, the first record he ever produced is Brendan O'Brien, who now has gone on to, you know, Superstardom as, as a producer. That was the first record he ever did. 
and he did a great job on that record. But, you know, just like a lot of things, they they were too early for what they were doing. Uh, they didn't really have proper management and, you know, all the all the pitfalls of why bands don't become successful. You know, they unfortunately had it. And I, like I said, I think if they would have come along a couple of years later, you know, that probably would have been way more into what they were doing. Like, great, great record and very, you know, if nobody's, if you haven't heard it before and you want to hear it, 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 it should be up on the all the streaming stuff, but it's, it's definitely black crows ish. Yeah. Eric Larson lives a stone's throw away from me from where I'm sitting right now. So, um, uh, I said, hello. hello. I will. I will. So you obviously built an empire out of this record label. And, and you said at one point early in the conversation, you know, you went from this fanzine and as you put it, then you took this crazy left turn. When you took that crazy left turn, did you have any sort of business acumen or any sort of mentor in the world of business and finance and that sort of thing? Or were you completely flying by the seat of your pants? I was pretty much flying by the seat of my pants. I mean, I'd gone to, I didn't graduate college. I'd gone two years and basically I was almost going to get my AA degree, but I dropped out because I was doing the label and 4,000 other things. Um, but I did take, I took a few business courses, so that helped a little bit. Um, but the, an early person that was really helpful to me, and our distributor Green World was, you know, I brought them both Motley Crue and Rat, so they liked me, obviously. Um, so they were helpful because I was just, you know, a dumb kid and didn't really know much about anything. They were the ones that gave me the, the uh, pressing and distribution deal because I had no money to do anything. And I barely was able to get that first metal massacre together. Um, so they helped a little bit, but our, uh, our lawyer, which is kind of funny because he started really day one, like I put out the compilation now, but I didn't have any contracts or anything. He had a, was just starting his law firm and this law office above the record store. And he said, you, do you have a lawyer? I said, I can't afford a lawyer. So I'll be your lawyer for like you know, 10 bucks an hour or something. Well, I'd probably afford that. So, so he's been our lawyer for day one. He's now reps every major producer known to man. And, you know, people, the guy who wrote half of Adele songs, the guy who writes, you know, produces more than one, like, Big time stuff. But he had become friends with this guy, Mike Harrison, who ended up uh, starting a, a, a talk radio magazine that was like the Bible of the of the talk radio circuit. Uh, talk, I forget what the name of it is now, but but Bill had known him and he was a local radio guy, pretty, pretty, you know, pretty famous in L.A. He was a little bit older. And for whatever reason, he, you know, Bill knew him and he kind of took a liking to me and what I was doing. So he was very helpful. Uh, and another early supporter, very early on, was a guy named Arthur Spivak. Uh, may he rest in peace. Was a, a business a manager who Googled him. He managed a whole ton of huge bands. Um, but same thing. He just I met him. He was a nice guy. You know, he's like, you know, if you need some help in the business, I'll help you out. So there was a few mentors there that that helped. But for the most part, I was just doing it all by myself and making every mistake possible. Uh, but the only thing that I did that I think was was smart back then was. I would just learn from the mistakes. Like if I made a mistake, I go, okay, I screwed this up. I let's just not do that again. How can I not make that same mistake a second time? And I think that's that's helped over all these years because I'm not afraid to admit, you know, we make mistakes all the time, but sure. the key is to not repeat those sure. mistakes as, as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. On the first but, but I was learning on the fly, basically. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're right, you gotta learn from your mistakes, or if you're smart, you learn from your mistakes. And try not to make them again. Um, on the first Metal Massacre record, uh, the one that famously uh, features Metallica, um, the the band's name is famously misspelled. 
Oh, not just the band's name. I mean, the band's name is misspelled. Ron McGovney's name is misspelled. Lloyd Grant's name is misspelled. So here's why. So we old school here. And for any of you people out there that aren't old enough to know what a typesetter is, go Google it. But back then, basically, you'd give all the information to somebody who would, would do typesetting, and that would be where how the stuff would look on a record. Uh, and, and I had all the credits and everything for everything else really early, so I was able to kind of go through and proofread it and, uh, and give it to the typesetter so it was clear and she could see it. Well, the Metallica song, they, we had a, a, a deadline of uh, 5 o'clock, whatever the day it was, February something or other in, in 82. And we told Lars, like, if you, you have to have it here to the studio where we're, where we're mastering it by 3 o'clock or whatever it was. So, you know, it's like 2.30 and he's not there yet. So we're almost like, I mean, there, and we're like, if he didn't make it, he's not going to make it, I'm not going to make it on the record. So he showed up the last minute, you know, with a, first of all, with a cassette tape. Um, and we needed it on a, on a reel-to-reel tape. So we had to bump it up 50 bucks. Nobody had 50 bucks. Thankfully, John Quinnerans, my friend who was helping me with all this stuff, had 50 bucks. Otherwise, they might not have been on that record. But he gave me a paper with all the information on it that he had written out, not so clearly, and I didn't really have time because we literally had to drive, drive that straight to the to the uh, typesetter right after it was basically being done at that time. So I guess when she saw everything, it wasn't printed very well. Number one, number two, Metallica is not a word. So I guess she felt that there should be two T's in there because maybe that's how the the you know English works for her. I don't know, but and then he had misspelled the other stuff just because you know you McGovney V looked like a U and. Yeah, and I don't know how she screwed a boy, but yeah, I got I got the album. I was like, "This is so great! I put out a record. I can't believe it." And I turned it around. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is my <laughs> well." It's also the last last song on the on the record. Yeah, I think we they had. Uh, I mean, it was for two reasons. Number one, because we you know when we were mastering it, we kind of had to make it the last song because it came in so late. Yeah. But I think that Lars wanted it. I, I believe he said, "I want this to be the last song on the record." Uh, so I was all right. I mean, I hadn't heard anything up until then, by the way. I hadn't heard anything. Didn't know what it was going to sound like. Didn't wow. know anything. He's just, he's just my friend and said, if I can if I put together a band, could I be on your record? I'm like, sure. So that's how Metallica started, obviously. And I wasn't sure what it sounded like uh, because even that day when we had to bump it up, we had to leave, I had to leave again because of the typesetter. So I never even heard that track until the record was done. Wow. Wow. And so... Remind Just, us all where this was recorded. Do you recall where they were Lars and Yeah, so they, they, they used something called a Fostex, which is this little yeah. probably this big device with a cassette, like four tracks. Yeah. Uh, I think they recorded in Lars' bedroom, probably a garage or something like that. Wow. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, Metallica basically doesn't exist at this point. Lars shows up with a tape of a band of guys that he put together specifically to submit a track to your record. Yeah, so the, the the story goes that, you know, Lars was trying to get in a band and wasn't having any success, and he had jammed with James a couple of times because James had a band called Leather Charm, but they didn't really think Lars was very good because, I mean, honestly, he wasn't very good at the time. He was still learning. But Lars went back to him and said, hey, I have an opportunity to be on a record, which in 1980, well, it was late 81, the record came out in 82. That was a huge thing. Like, being on a record was, you know, it just doesn't happen back then. Nice. So James is like, oh, we can be on a record? Then, yeah, for sure, let's do it. And, you know, they're very nice and kind to me and always mention that story that, you know, Metallica might not have ever existed if it wasn't for that. So, I mean, you know, That's whatever. 
I mean, it, it's nice that they say that. I, I, I would like to hope that they would have done something, but I'm happy to play my, my little role in it. I think that's one of the cool things about your story is that you were, you know, not only instrumental in helping these bands get started, but all these years later, you're still you're you're personal friends with them. This wasn't some sort of one time business transaction and then they got famous and forgot you. Um, you're still friendly with these guys. And I think that speaks volumes about their character and probably also speaks to to a degree to the metal community at large. There's a certain loyalty when you do something, uh, they tend not to forget it. And, but I mean, we're talking about the biggest band ever when, in the case of Metallica. And I think it's really cool that they've never forgotten you. Uh, they still, they, they still consider you a friend. They still give you your credit where credit is due. And then, you know, in the same breath, I'm going to add that Carrie King wrote the foreword to your latest book, swing of the blade uh again that goes to show this certain loyalty this appreciation that's never died i think that's a remarkable part of your story yeah and lars wrote the uh the forward to the first book which was cool so yeah it's, carrie's funny because carrie's like one of my really good friends and uh you know i've radio tickets together and I, I saw him about a week ago he was here in vegas so such a good dude but you know i, I didn't I, I always feel odd asking people like even with lars i i don't think I asked him. I think I went to Q Prime and said, hey, do you think Lars could do that? I don't want to ask him directly. Same thing with Carrie. Like, I, I didn't want to ask. Because he's not that kind of guy that does that sort of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to management and said, hey, uh, can you ask Carrie who wants to do this? And he said, sure, obviously. He's such a good guy. He's really, he's also, a, you know, he's got the image out there, you know, Mr. You know, mean and all this yeah. stuff. He's like the sweetest right. guy ever. And he said, he did the forward and he sent it to me, you know, texted, texted, texted it to me. And said, what do you think? I go, dude, this is amazing. They're like, really? Are you sure? I'm going, it's phenomenal. Thank you so much. So and he kind of uh, admitted, he kind of admitted that he, it kind of was like, not uncomfortable, but it's not, you know, I, in the forward, he's even being honest saying, you know, I don't even, where do I start? How do I do yeah. this kind of a vibe, which makes it authentic. Yeah. He's not that, he's not that kind of guy, but I was kind of thinking, you know, when I'm doing this book, it's like, well, first of all, you know, because I know that people could do us, you know, I'm good friends with Chris Jericho. I mean, I kind of get him to do it, but I kind of want to keep it in the Metal Blade family. And yeah. you know, I threw out some other names and I just like, oh, it'd be really cool. You know, I mean, Lars did the first one. So you got to follow it up with, you know, somebody halfway decent. So right. uh, I figured, you know, if Carrie would be perfect because I, you know, I mean, obviously we have the, the relationship with Slayer in the early days and he, he's still a very good friend of mine. So uh, I'm, luckily he did it. But it's funny. I asked him the other, when I was with him the other day, I said, I got to do the audio book. Uh, do you want to read your part? He's like, nah, I'm not doing that. I go, okay, I'll get John Bush to do it. He he's he's he did a bunch of the first book, so he's like that that guy. He's like, yeah, his perfect. He's got a good voice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Bush Bush nice. is but, awesome. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I uh, first of all with like bands like Slayer, Metallica, he was the early bands. You know, we're we're just we're all we're all just fans from that that time frame. And you know, I'm happy that you know I'm friends with you know not only just bands that were on Metal Blade, but you know. The Anthrax guys are really good friends of mine. You know, so many bands are, and it's just it's very. It's because we're all we're all metal fans, and we're all in this in this community together. And you know, 99 percent of all of everybody's they're really great people, and we're all you know we share that love of metal, and, and especially a lot of guys that came up. You know, it, it's funny because there's a, these different dynamics. You know, a lot of a lot of friends came up at the same time I did, so we're the same age, so we're the same same you know bands we discovered early on and whatnot but then you have the other guys like for example 
uh, Johan, the singer from Amana Marth, as I'm wearing their shirt today, is also a very, a very close friend of mine as well. And, you know, he's about 10 years, yeah, about 10 years younger than I am. And so it's just interesting to hear, hear his trajectory and, you know, what got him into metal and what were the gateways. Because, you know, a lot of, a lot of these guys had like, well, I was there, well, it wasn't really a gateway necessarily. It was just, you know, right but the classic stuff but for you know guys that are a little bit younger there's the gateway bands they first heard that got them down there so it's really interesting but I, but it oh just to wrap up real quick it's just it's you know i like to work with people that i get along with uh i don't want to work with people that are a headache or have you know drug problems or you know any sort of um, so we've been pretty lucky over the years. We haven't had dealt with too many of those issues. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say, you know, almost every band on the label are all good friends of mine that I, that, you know, I, I have enough contact with. So that's, yeah. which is I think too, there's another shared camaraderie among you and the bands that you signed. And that is this, a lot of the music that you brought to the world for the first time was in, a, in many, many ways, very unprecedented. We didn't hear bands like Metallica or Slayer uh, in the early 80s when this stuff. I remember thinking that it just couldn't get heavier than Iron Maiden, you know, and then so so there's this brotherhood among you all that you started something and it took over the world. You stuck it to the man and you did it on your own terms out of a basement somewhere. And look at us now. And I think if you share that experience with somebody, you don't forget it. Hundred percent, and you know, all of us. You know, people ask the always ask get, get asked the question: Do you ever see think that any of this would be as big as it is? And there's at, back in the early days, no, no way. There's no way. I mean, none of us thought any of this was would ever be as big as as this whole thing has, has got. We were just we were just fans of the music, and we were just doing whatever we could to you know try to promote or play or whatever the music that we love. We didn't really think about making money or think about selling a lot of records. We're just like, we're just trying try to make enough money to, to try to survive, which, you know, was not easy for a lot of us. Um, but we did it because we loved it. And then, you know, the fact that it, it has become successful. And I think it took a while, you know, you, have, you talk about Metallica and even, and even Slayer. It's like, it took a while for those bands to get really big. So it wasn't like they were, you know, all of a sudden thrust into the spotlight, which, you know, some other bands have, and they may have, you know, fame may have changed them. Where these guys, took a while for them to, to get to that point. I think that, like if Metallica would have had that crazy, you know, it would have been massive right away, and maybe it would have been a little bit of a different story, but it took them a while, so they, they appreciate it. I, I, I think that there's a, there's a story here. I'm in a club in Los Angeles. It's like 1989, and I'm in the restroom, and Lars walks in, and he's in the stall. He's in the, the urinal right next to me, not to be gross or anything and, and i'm like dude he's like dude he goes uh what are you doing i said i'm out here working the, the dangerous toys record he goes wow oh yeah wow and it's like yeah he goes he said something to me he's like that happened too fast so just to make the story real short it was like i, I you know you may know my history dave knows my history i'm in watchtower and then a minute later i'm making a record in la with max norman and lars is going damn that was that's too fast so what you're talking about this like sort of like gradual fan building it's it's kind of like the tape trading and kind of like i've got to get I, I i heard this one song i heard i heard uh you know riding with the angels 
Samson on this mixtape that my buddy at in ninth grade gave me yesterday and I have to find the record. You know, it starts that kind of thing. Well, that's a trajectory. That's a momentum that has yet to even be realized. And so I feel like what you're saying is straight up the true way to just have your successes be worthy and not, you know, you don't, you don't have a party the day that your demo comes out. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not about that. Just to to toot your horn a bit. I was going to mention that earlier, but since you brought it up, that you had a Watchtower, which is, you know, still one of the greatest bands from that era. And Watchtower was, I think probably universally the most loved demo when, when the first Watchtower came out. Like I was getting bombarded with people just going, oh my God, if you heard this, if you heard this, if you heard this, I mean, you know, he said to me, like, oh, yeah, this is, yeah, this is incredible. So, uh, yeah. Great, was- great, crazy music from crazy kids still in yeah. high school. So, and, and so early on, too, like what you guys were doing was, was super progressive, obviously. And it was, you know, same thing, so ahead of, of what, you know, so ahead of your time, really, what you guys were doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the bands like Voivod and and there's a slew of other bands that had their own. I mean, what the fuck is Voivod? You know, what the fuck is Watchtower? What the fuck is happening right now? Goes back to the crossover thing. But yep. you could say the same thing about Johnny Law. It was t- like too soon for people. To, well, where do I? I see a bunch of geometric cutouts on the wall. Where the fuck do I put this? So that can be part of your business trajectory either and i don't mean to to just kind of jump around i want to know at what point did did you ever recoup on this i know it wasn't the plan i'm holding up the first metal massacre which is people don't don't realize people don't realize that it's it's your it's your fanzine yeah that's really putting this out yeah yeah, Yeah. i i wasn't starting a record company i'm just putting out an album of bands that i wanted to help out so that's what the fanzine thing is on there and i have no idea so okay. again, talking about making mistakes, I made a- every conceivable mistake on that first record. Um, first of all, I only had enough money. I was able to, to, I had a little bit of money. My aunt gave me a little bit of money. John Cornerans gave me a little bit of money. Said enough money to barely ma- manufacture 2,500 copies of that first album. Which wow, back sold- then, that's a lot. That's a no, lot for back yeah, then. I mean, but it sold out in like a week. Or two weeks. Holy shit! So these 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 distributors probably saying we need we need more. I go, I, first of all, you haven't paid me yet, and say, oh, I don't have any money. So I you know, I didn't know what to do. So Gem Records, which was one of the largest uh, independent distributors at the time, came to me and said, Well, why don't you license us the record? We'll manufacture and get it out for you. I said, Okay, no problem. So I did that, and they completely screwed it up. They changed the cover. That's the one that's just silver with the Metal Master thing on it. Um, and I have right. no idea how much that sold. I never got account. I never got one accounting. Uh, they went bankrupt, and we tried to get you know some answers, but we never did. So then we got the right, obviously, got the rights back eventually, and and put it out in its proper form. So that would be the third version of that, and that we sold. I think roughly twenty five thousand copies between vinyl, and we also did it on a cassette at the time. Um, and we had the rights for five years, basically. And then after five years, we lost the rights and we just kind of, we just kind of, kind of moved on. So I think it was, you know, between the stuff that we did is about 27,000 maybe that we did over the the five years. Again, I have no idea what, what Jim sold. And then that was really it. 
And then we just recently, you know, I wanted to do this for years, but I thought it was going to be a nightmare from hell. I wanted to reissue it. And you know, I, don't, I don't know who, own the, who owns the rights to everything. You know, we, we don't have any rights. So, but I thought it was going to be just a gigantic pain in the ass. And it was, you know, I didn't want to do it for a long time. But I thought, well, for our 40th anniversary, I really would love to do this and, and reissue it because people ask all the time. So I sat down for an afternoon. I got everybody's contacts. I you know either, either emailed or Facebook messaged or whatever. All you know, all the guys from the different bands. I, I knew like I knew Bitch would do it. I knew Stuart Dungle would do it. I knew Metallica would do it because you know they're all good friends of mine. And, and you know Metallica has been nothing but spectacular to to us over all these all these years and continues to be. But I wasn't sure about you know Rat or Black and Blue or you know, malice. I didn't know who owns the rights and stuff, but I just reached out to all the guys I knew. And within two hours, everybody said, yes, we're in. And it wow. was like one of the easier things I ever did. And we wanted to keep it, wanted to keep it rare. So we only did 5,000 copies of it on vinyl. And then Metallica came in and said, well, could we do a, a different variant, a different color? Like do 2,000 just to the Met Club? And I was like, of course. So we had to go ask everybody else. And I said, said, sure. So that was really fun. So the cool thing too about that, and this will answer some of your questions, uh, we've done uh, a documentary actually about that first Metal, Metal Masquerade album, which I didn't know about. They, they kind of the staff decided to to do something just to kind of to surprise me, I guess, a little bit. Uh, we just thought it was gonna be like a 20, 30 minute little documentary, but we got every band is on there, every band on the record is on there. Um, and they, you know, they've got me. It's turned into this like hour and 20 minute long documentary, which we're Figuring out where we're going to place it. So, but it came out really, really cool. And it was really just incredibly nice of all these guys to, to do it. I, you know, I've rekindled after, I mean, I hadn't talked to Stephen Piercy for 25 years or something. And wow. so rekindled a friendship with him. And he's been really great. He lives here in, in the Vegas area. So, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Rat because they also appeared on the first Metal, Metal Massacre record. Uh, so much like the case with Metallica, you can be credited with the first commercial recording of Rat. Um, and they all they obviously went on to big things, too, but in sort of a different genre. But I think it speaks to what you, a point you were making earlier that when you were putting this out, you weren't necessarily all completely focused on it's got to be metal. It's got to be thrash. You were looking for things that you enjoyed or, you know, just things that you like listening to. I think Bitch is on the record, and and yep. they're also sort of, you know, maybe a little more in the same vein as Rat in the sense that they're not thrashy necessarily. But I wanted to talk about Rat. Tell me your impressions of Rat, how you found them, how you discovered them, and how they ended up on the record. Good question. Yeah, so, uh, and Molly Crew, by the way, that's supposed to be on the, on the album as well, but because I did a ton of work with them. Uh, I wrote uh, the first article ever uh, uh, with Sylvie Simmons for Sounds Magazine in the, in the UK. They did a big, a big two-page spread on them, which ignited this firestorm in the UK, because they were like, what is this band? And then their managers came to me and said, uh, hey, we have uh, 900 Motley Crue records that we made. What do we do with them? I said, we'll take them to this distributor, Green World, and they'll help you. If I knew them, what I knew now, right? So Rat was a similar thing. So, so when I was reading the record store, I had no idea that there was any sort of scene in Los Angeles. I just figured it was all about what was going on in Europe. And one of the guys who used to come in a lot and buy records I became friendly with said, well, you know, there's metal bands here in LA. I said, oh, art? He goes, yeah. So the first show I saw was at the Troubadour in LA on a Wednesday night for a dollar, Motley Crue and Rat. I was like, wow, and they're both a lot heavier at that point, but they were both great. 
So that was the first time I saw rap, obviously, and just thought that they were great. I think Jackie Lee was in the band at that point, and they were a little heavier. They're a little, little more Van Halen-ish, I guess. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm Judas Priest-ish, actually. Okay. But we were playing Flying Bees and stuff. So I just became friendly with them. I became more friendly with Robin. Uh, Robin, like, there's a scene in, the, in those early days where we'd all go hang out at the Troubadour and see the other bands, and we'd end up... Betsy's mom's house was about 10 minutes from the, the strip in Hollywood, and we'd all end up Usually end up after the gigs over there hanging out. You know, Robin was one of the guys that would hang, that would hang out with us a lot. So became really friendly with him. And what a sweetheart of a guy, too. And, you know, Rat would just, they were just, they were kind of around. They hadn't really gotten their 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 um, their audience quite yet because they had changed a lot of members and they, you know, kind of switching around. And I remember I was talking to Robin once and he was like, you know, we just can't find an audience. I don't want, you know, you know, what do we do? Because they were like, they were literally opening for Bitch a lot. Um and I, oh, you guys will be fine. Your your guys are really good. You'll be fine. You'll you'll get there. And then you know, I think both he and Steven kind of saw the motley trajectory and started, and were like, oh okay, that that's probably a good way to go. And they kind of followed in their footsteps a little bit. But and it was the same thing. You know, they had an EP that they did after we did the the track. You know, they yeah, had a demo on uh, Time Coast. Is that the yeah? Name it was on their label? own label, basically. Yeah, yeah. Time Coast, and I think the uh, Bow Hill. Did Bow Hill do it? I don't, did both, I, did he do the EP? He might have. I, I, so, I can't I, I, I have to go look that up. I, I, wore, that. I wore that thing out, man. Oh, so good. I, yeah. I was on, I, I, uh, Stephen was on Eddie Trunk's radio show the other day, and he, Eddie's doing a lot of his shows from here in, in Vegas. So, so I, uh, I, I uh, barged in and, and talked for a little bit to Stephen. Cool. It was, it was pretty fun. But yeah, but they, you know, but I, I really like the band and look, in all honesty, I needed bands for the record. That's why there's two Malice tracks on there because Motley was originally going to be on there, but they fell off because they were already becoming something. They didn't really need to be on there, so it made sense. So uh, Malice had a couple extra, so- a bunch of good songs. They well, we'll just put an extra Malice song on there. But yeah, Rat was always always really good, and I was, you know, obviously, it's L.A. was such an interesting time back then because you know we're all kind of in the same scene, and there was you know not only you know. About bitch and Savage Grace and Steeler and you know all these these bands in L.A. Omen and then Armored Saint and you know it's quite a but it was interesting because there was like and obviously Metallica and Slayer as well all the heavy side was one sided and then kind of the the other side with Motley and Rat and all of those kind of bands you know, I guess you could throw Wasp in there maybe uh, but it was a really incredible time in L.A. because you had these two separate scenes that were happening and it was just. I mean, it was super exciting Just for me. I mean, I was lucky to be, I mean, you know, really lucky to be in the right place at the right time in, the, in LA in the early 80s. Yeah. We, you mentioned earlier, we had DJ Will on, on the podcast uh, a while back, and I asked him this question. Uh, of course, DJ, was, uh, DJ Will was an employee of Metal Blade Records for a number of years, which is why I asked the question at the time, and I wanted to ask you. I asked him what bands uh were basically near misses like you were this close you you they had your attention you were thinking about signing them you didn't and you wish you had and earlier you mentioned um watchtower uh a demo circulating that everybody was raving about uh dj will mentioned watchtower he also mentioned pantera um so from your perspective what were a couple bands that came on your radar that you couldn't sign for some reason but you really wish you could have yeah, well, Pantera being one of them, and that was just uh, it was, uh, like these things are always just a money issue. I mean, they get at the same thing, you know. We were kind of 
kind of the in the ball game with them early on, but but we didn't we didn't have enough money at the time either, so they they signed with Combat. Um, but there's some interesting ones, like for example, uh, Metal Church. Like I I was friends with Kurt Vetter, who from Metal Church from a long time. In fact, they were they were also almost going to be on the first Metal Massacre album as well. We eventually got them on Metal Massacre Five, but. What I explained to everybody back back then was, you know, why didn't you sign Anthrax? Why didn't you sign, you know, Metal Church? Well, no faxes, no internet, no nothing in the early eighties, right? And a phone call, like a like an hour long phone call from Los Angeles to Seattle, might be a hundred dollars, and from New York to LA might be a hundred dollars. Like it was, it was not cheap. So if you were signing a band from some other place. Like you had to, you know, call them at night and, you know, do these different things because it was just really hard to do. So, you know, Metal Church would have been one band I've always loved and it would have been great on the label. The, the Probably the biggest one was uh, was Guns N' Roses. So they were playing around L.A. and I was friends with their manager. I was good friends with the guy who engineered their demo, all this stuff. And they kept saying, oh, come on, you got to come see them. You got to come see them. They're great. They're great. And other friends... We were telling me the same thing. I, no, I don't. I was never a fan of glam. Don't like that whole scene. I, I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go. You can ask me a hundred times. I'm not gonna go. So I never went. I mean, not that we put out that maybe we could have put out the Uzi Suicide EP thing that they put out before Appetite, but I never even listened to that. So Appetite comes out. I was in our New York office and I get a cassette, the advanced cassette, and I put it in the tape, the tape recorder. <laughs> I was playing. I go. Oh my God! Well, this is incredible. So we actually ended up doing a lot of uh, marketing promotion for them. We we did stuff for Alice in Chains, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, uh, Fable More. Like we did all the underground marketing, all of the uh, college radio and you know fa- underground fans and stuff. We did all the marketing because the labels had no idea what what to do about any of that stuff. So we did it. So I remember the first time I met Slash. It was I, I can't remember if I if I told the story in one of the books or not, but I was, it was at an Iron Maiden seventh son of a seventh son listening party in Hollywood. I'd never met him before. And somebody, somebody said, Hey, you know, Slash is around here. I go, oh, I'd love to say hi. And he sort of started talking, you know, he came over, started talking and we started drinking, you know, so towards the end of the evening, we, you know, we both had, you know, quite a few Jack and Cokes or shots of Jack or whatever at the time. And he finally goes, he's like, how come you never came to see us? And I go, I thought you guys were a glam band. And I just, I wasn't into it. He's like, I hate that people thought that. And I go, yeah, me too. So <laughs> not, again, who knows? You know. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting relate. because you kind of, you, you did take a liking to Rat. And, you know, there's, people could argue that, you know, obviously they became very glammy. I don't know what they were looking like. It was this, yeah, the Rat of the early, and the Motley too of the early 80s was was not nearly where in fact the first time i saw molly with her hair all freaked out was on the back of too fast for love i was like i've never seen that before right like you know they were kind of a very both bands were were pretty heavy and they just went in that direction and then you know poison who i don't like at all uh sorry uh oh that's fair up up the ante for that scene it's not not my scene but that's kind of my point it's like you know rat and motley were kind of dirtier and a little more street at that point and if ever there was a band that was dirty and street it was <laughs> guns and roses not glam not yeah but, I, but again i had no idea i just saw the flyers and the flyers they were all kind of glammed out i think they were just doing it because that was the scene in, in hollywood at that time I, yeah I'm just like, they're all glammed out i'd have no interest <laughs> I, I feel like i feel like uh 
that happens a lot where um, you know, you're in a band and there's a, there's trends that in your psyche you end up following. So you have this, what others will perceive a cool flyer or some kind of, well, I, I don't know. I mean, we sound the way we sound. What are we going to do to stand out? Oh, I guess we'll just look like they don't realize whether they look like something that they don't sound like. I mean, a prime example is uh, the Cinderella record. In my opinion, that first Cinderella, there's songs on there that are fucking dark. The title track, it's like this weird Alice in Chains fucking Sabbath vibe going on. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? I'm, I'm re-looking at the front cover and going, what the fuck? It doesn't, the name of the band is wrong. That it So... I see. Yeah, you're you're completely right about that. Like I was I was not in any of that hair metal stuff at all, but I love Cinderella. Cinderella to me wasn't a hair metal band. I mean, it had the image, oh. but they were they were they were an Aerosmith kind of R and B dirty band. They were I saw them a bunch live. They were great. I'm I'm actually really good friends with Fred Corey to this day. He's like one of the nicest people on the planet yeah. as well. And for some reason, a whole bunch of guys in Tom Kiefer's band follow me on on social media which is interesting um yeah. but yeah in fact t- to speak of that um ricky rackman if you i'm sure everybody knows who ricky was oh yeah know, headbangers ball forever so i follow him on all his social media things and he's out on the road doing his uh, he'll, he'll be in austin guy. he'll be in austin tomorrow oh cool awesome yeah, yeah. He, he said he was playing vegas but then i saw the dates and he's not so i'm kind of bummed because i really want to oh. see his this thing I've seen some clips and it's just him t- telling stories. But anyway, he was in New Orleans and told this great story about he's in New Orleans for a Cinderella release party at some point. Yeah, and he was they were uh, he was with Kiefer and a, you know, a couple of other guys and they went to some like you know if you've been to New Orleans they have these amazing blues bars there where just these phenomenal players out of nowhere just incredible. So they went into this one blues bar and Kiefer got up and sang the blues with a bunch of these guys and. and Ricky said it was unbelievable. Like he was singing the blues, sounding amazing. I mean, he's a phenomenal singer to to this day. Yeah. But yeah, I, I they were lumped into that whole thing with those bands. I always thought they were way more like Aerosmith than they were that whole yeah. air metal stuff. So you're completely right about that. They I were, just thought they were I like just... from the wrong side of the street. They got up yeah. on the wrong side of the bed and wrote those songs. And I'm like, yes, stay whatever it is you're doing, stay yeah. there. And uh, I think they pulled it off. The wrong band name. I don't know who decided that was a good good idea. Yeah, I just uh, I just saw Kiefer here in Austin last weekend, and he was amazing. Uh, just incredible. It it, it actually. It was kind of a reminder to me. I always knew he was a great talent, but I haven't seen him live. Well, I saw him live the year before, but this time I was right up close. And it was it was one of those things where you rarely see a guy do this. Like he started a song on the piano and then stood up. And then in time for the guitar solo, a tech comes out and straps a guitar on. He rips off the solo, just wails it, puts the guitar back. Then he becomes just a front man. I mean, in the course of one song. And yeah, he did that in Cinderella too. Yeah, this happened all night long. You know, he'd he'd start off just singing the vocals and then someone would bring him a guitar or he'd start off with the guitar and get rid of the guitar. And, you know, it was phenomenal. And his voice sounded amazing. And this was just last week. So he's still incredible. It's a little bit different when you see that uh, right this close. Yeah. Because I, you know, the first time I saw, uh, it was actually Cinderella. And then a, a year later, it was on the Monsters of Rock Cruises saw Cinderella kind of a reunion vibe. And then, uh, and then a year or two later, I was on the cruise again and I saw just Tom Kiefer's version of it. 
And uh, yeah, I saw all that and I had never seen it before. So this was in this decade. So you're kind of like, well, that changes everything because it's not just hearing the record and wow, this is great. And then like, what's for dinner? It's kind of like, holy shit. So it kind of seals the deal as to, and it also got, once again, goes back to the crossover thing to me that it's not glam, yeah. but it has that element because it's rock and roll. It's really dirty. It's kind of sounds like it's from the seventies, but it's completely viable material for radio play right now. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. weird. Yeah. It's timeless. That's the word I think. You know? yeah. It worked in 85 and 86 and it works to this day. And that's just a, that's just a mark of great musicianship and great songwriting. Yeah. Brian, I was going to ask you, um, I keep calling it an empire because I don't think there's a more suitable word for what you've done with Metal Blade Records. I have to ask, with all your success, what's the biggest offer you've been given by a major label to buy you out? Oh, yeah. Uh, stupid money. But I, I have no interest in it. Uh, money's not my motivating factor at all. I mean, I, I have a very comfortable life, uh, you know, I, I don't need a Ferrari or a mansion in the hills or any of this stuff. You know, I drive a Honda Honda Civic Sport, which is a perfectly fine car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm able to have a couple of properties, nice properties in Vegas. So I, I, what am I going to do? Like, I mean, sell the company. It's two, two things why I would never do that. Uh, number one, uh, and the, probably the biggest reason is that if I sell the company, I'm going to have to sign a, a contract for three to five years to run it because they're not going to buy it if I'm not going to run it. So that's number one. So then I got to answer somebody else. I've never answered to anybody else in my entire life. And I'm not planning on doing that now. So I don't want to, and I have a lot of friends who have sold their labels or their, their companies, different companies. And it's just, it's, they instantly regret it as soon as they've done it because then all of a sudden they realize that, Oh no, I got to ask some guy to suit that doesn't know anything. Can I, can I spend a thousand dollars on this or something? So I'm, I, I, I wouldn't want to do that. Number one, because I don't want to do that. Number two, I wouldn't do that to our employees. We have a phenomenal staff and, you know, it's taken us a long time to get here, but our, our staff are absolutely incredible. And I know that if I resigned it, that half of them would be kicked out. They wouldn't have any jobs. And the same thing with the bands. You know, we've, we've you know, cultivated this, you know, uh, in, for lack of a better word, family between everybody. And, and you know, some bands might, might work out okay with that, but some, some bands weren't. I've seen it happen with all the other labels that have sold it. And I wouldn't want to do that for that. And I also kind of want to have you know, more of a lasting legacy for the name Metal Blade, because who knows if I sold it to Sony or, you know, some mega, you know, company or whatever, that they, you know, might eventually just phase out the name down the road. I, I don't want to do that. So we have a secession plan and we have all these different things going on to try to keep it as independent, as humanly possible for as long as humanly possible. So, uh, so yeah, but but there's some there's some numbers out there that, that even, you know, we never, we never, We've only done it once or twice where we kind of went down the road at you know doing an actual valuation and having all that sort of nonsense there. Uh, but yeah, people have thrown out really dumb, just dumb money, but I, I have no interest. Wow. Wow. I love you even more. Interesting, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. It's so That's great. amazing. <clears throat> um, I, uh, I heard go ahead, Dave. Sorry. I, I heard you mention earlier uh that you and uh Carrie King have Raiders tickets and there's another thing we have in common i'm also a raiders fan although we haven't had much to cheer about in decades um 
But full disclosure, technically not a Raiders fan. So oh, okay, you're just I'll, tagging I'll, along with. I, mean, I grew up a Broncos fan. Oh, uh, but I but I but I don't hate. I never hated the Raiders. I hate the Chargers and the Chiefs, uh, but I never hated the Raiders. And because I have so many friends who are a big fan, Hetfield's a big fan, and you know, Kerry's always been a big fan. So you know, the colors are great. But Kerry started taking me to games years ago, and he's you know he's friends with Fred Malitnikoff and you know all these like big executives for the Raiders. And a bunch of them are all massive metalheads, like huge metalheads. So I kind of became friendly with a bunch of guys who worked for the Raiders. And then when they came here to Vegas, you know, Carrie's like, we got to get tickets. My guys are going to get us really great tickets. I'm like, all right. So we have really great tickets. They weren't cheap. They definitely weren't cheap. Uh, you know, on the 20 yard line, I'm sorry, on the 50 yard line, about 20 rows up, and we have all the private clubs and stuff. So it's a blast. And I mean, he's, he's a diehard Raider fan. I feel, I feel bad for him. Sometimes when the Raiders uh, lose games, because if they win, he's in a really good mood. If they lose, not as much. Yeah, Belitnikov is one of my all-time favorite players, so I'm a little and envious there. One of the nicest people. Him and his wife. We stayed. We I went to maybe two or three games in their suite when they're still in Oakland. And my gosh, just such wonderful, down to earth, really super nice people. Very impressive. That's you guys. Awesome. Um, you you talk about. Uh, sports you're kind of in and out in your in your latest book about sports and and uh, how big of a fan you are but what what's interesting to me um even more more so uh is um the fact that most of the people that you're talking about in there when you find out they're a metalhead it makes it just seems to make life easier for you when you're just, you know, going to a game or, you know, uh, getting tickets or writing. Also, you ha you're friends with people who um, I'm going to get their names wrong, so I'm not even going to try. But people who write sports articles and things and you're talking about the, you know, just that whole there's a culture there that you're part of because first off you're a fan of that but then when you find out they're metalheads this other part of you raises up on top and then they're like what you know um do you feel like uh you know the idea that uh someone flying uh whether they're wearing a you know a, a wasp t-shirt or a slayer t-shirt or whatever you're a once you you don't know because they're wearing a sports jacket or whatever and then you find out that they have the same record collection as you yep you, you're they're in your tribe like boom it's like magnets boom soon but that magnet there's no connection until it's interesting how all walls fall yep well one thing i've learned and it kind of started with sports because i'm a huge sports fan especially hockey and, uh, you know, I, started, I did a podcast for a few years with Sean Rourke, who uh, wrote, uh, one of the guys that's the senior editor of NHL.com. So we did this podcast. He came to me with the idea, like, you want to do a podcast and we'll talk to hockey players, athletes, celebrities about who are metalheads. I'm like, all right, sounds interesting. But like hockey players especially have, you know, their interviews are extremely boring. They have no personality. How, how are we going to talk for 45 minutes with these guys when you know it's hard to get five minutes out of them when you're watching these interviews and, they, and they, even then they're boring but once you talk to these guys and they're not talking about hockey and they're talking about what they really like and music it was i mean half the time we'd have to stop at like an hour we, would, we had guys on multiple times uh, who end up going into media and stuff which was really fun and the other thing i've learned is that no matter what it is no matter what walk of life it is whether it's a sports team or sports league or 
uh, a bank or, you know, you name the industry, there are metalheads in that industry. I met countless people who are like, you know, super high up executives at, at like banks, for example, or super high up executives in, in the, you know, in the spirits world. There's all these different people that are massive metalheads that you just, you, you know, for me, I, I don't know, I'm just putting this, this music out and, you know, I'm trying to turn it on to different people, to different people. You don't really think like who's a big music fan and then you know i i meet mike piazza from the dodgers when he was playing for the dodgers and i become really good friends with him and you know chris jericho the the wrestling guy him and i are really close friends well i don't don't know anything about wrestling i don't like like wrestling i think i watched one of his matches i'm like who is that guy but we're both metal nerds so we'll constantly text each other like you know talking about iron maiden i've done his podcast a bunch talking about about music and stuff too so it's really crazy but i love it when my worlds collide especially with, with hockey because i've become really ingrained in that world where i have so many friends that are you know both players and also executives and you know guys who cover the sport so i get all the inside information so you know when the, the Stanley cup finals were here in vegas it was great because i was able to hang out with all these guys and get all the the super inside information and everything so it's it's fun for me and i I, when I was talking to these guys, and they're like high up guys on TV and you know all the sports media stuff. And I go, can't believe you guys, you know, let me hang out with you guys. Like, no, you're you're in, you're doc, you're in, you're you're doc, you're you're doctored in, or you know you're in you're in our fold now. You're you're all right. So I'm like, oh, okay, because I do know a lot about hockey. So that's uh, I might know more about hockey than I do metal, maybe. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's saying a lot. So uh, I got to ask you: Do you think Slayer's really done? Yes. Uh, people ask me that all the time so one thing i'll say about carrie is carrie is a man of his word and you know he he you know he's a very stubborn guy and you know he said there's not going to be slayer ever again you know when he did the the amazing chain drop at the end at the end of the last show that's it i I mean you you can't ever say ever never right but i would be utterly shocked to my bone if slayer ever played another show i I just don't think it's going to happen he wow. mentions it in the foreword, he says, of the new book. He says, even though my band is long gone or something like that. Yep. And then he goes, and then he, he mentioned it like it's like a snip, and then he's off I to I mean, look, what's, what's the reason, what's the main reason why all these bands are still playing? All these older bands still playing. They need the money. Money. Wives, kids, divorces, you know, all this sort yep. of stuff. And they, or they've just gone through their money. Like, I mean, some bands, I get it, like Metallica, they don't need to play another show. They have money for 100 lifetimes. They could have broken but, up 15, 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> but, the thing, but the thing about that is, and same thing with athletes, like if you see athletes when they're, you know, they have to retire at a certain point, right? Just because the, mm-hmm. the body gives up. So they're 39 years old. That's why you see these, these guys give these press conferences. They're crying because they know they're never going to have the experience of running out in front of 20, 40, 50,000 people and being able to entertain them and play a sport. Well, if you're a musician... You crave that. It's almost like, you know, like a drug. Like, I mean, imagine, you know, being Metallica and you're walking in front of 60,000 people and you have them in the palm of your hands. I mean, the, the adrenaline rush just has to be, uh, I've talked to those guys about it. It's just, it's out of control. So they do it because they, they love doing it. And it's, you know, that, that adulation is insane. So a lot of, so some bands will do it for that, but the majority of them do it for the fact that, that they, they need the cash and carry made plenty of money. He was very smart with his money. I don't think he could ever run out. I mean, maybe he could, but I don't think he, he, he will. He seems super intelligent to and me. He's very, very smart. 
Oh, but he's yeah. doing his own thing now, which I think is going to be really good, and I think people are going to be surprised at at, at, at how good it is. Um, and it'll do well. I mean, I, you know, is it going to become as big a Slayer? I mean, maybe in a few years it might be, but I don't think he really cares at this point. I think he you know, wants, wants to make really good music. I'm sure it's going to sound very similar to what Slayer was because that's what he does. But yeah, I, you know, we, we, you t- so many of these bands here, yeah, they're, t- they're even some of the tours happening now, like you know, El John and and uh, uh, Deep Purple, and you know, some of these these artists are saying it's it's the last uh, Kiss, Aerosmith, it's the last ever tour. So it doesn't right. mean they're not going to play more gigs. It's the last ever right. tour, right. So, which is fine. I get it. You know, I'm hoping that you know when Kiss is done, they'll come do a residency here in Vegas. So. You know, yeah, <laughs> sure. But yeah, you know, with Slayer, I, I'm pretty sure that, that that's just not. I, I would, like I said, I would be really, really shocked because Carrie, you know, I, I won't tell stories, but there, I know of things that I that I tried to get Carrie to do that I thought would be pretty cool. Uh, but once he has his mindset on something, that it's not going to change. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat similar question um, as a guy who was the first to bring Metallica to us. Uh, by way of your Metal Massacre compilation, uh, what's your opinion on their latest album, Seventy Two Seasons? Um, so first of all, uh, Greg Fiddleman, who uh, used to play this back on Rhino Bucket that I absolutely love, back huge fan, huge fan. 90s. Yeah, yeah, I have stories I can tell you, but another time. Yeah, exactly. Same here. Um, yeah. Anyway, he proves so. The, the sonically, I think the last two records have been the best two sounding records they probably ever made. Um, I like. I like Hardwired a little bit more because I, I like the songs. But my problem with this record is I, I do really love it. I think that about, uh, I guess, 70% of it is really, really great. There's a few songs that I, that I like parts of it, but not the whole thing. But I don't like the sequence. To me, I would have sequenced that record a lot differently. Uh, and that's how I listen to it, in my sequence. And then I go, I really like it. Um, wow. but yeah, the sequence is a lot, but I, it's still really good. I mean, I think if for, look for a band that's at this point in their career, it kind of started with Hardwired where they kind of went back to the roots a little bit and made a super heavy album. I mean, they're still, you know, they're still making pretty heavy records. I, and the one song that I didn't, wasn't sure that I was going to like at first, but it kind of has really grown on me is the 11 minute song with M, what is it, Emirata or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. That's, that song's really good. It creeps in my head now a lot. So, uh, oh. but it's good. I, I like it. Like I said, there's probably three, maybe four songs that are okay, uh, but the rest of it's great. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Lux Eterna? What do you think of the I first it. single? Yeah. It's old school. It's an old school song. A very, very early, very new wave, never very new wave of British heavy metal related, and the little ode to Motorhead at the end with the double kick drum from Ace of Spades. Yeah. It's great. It's great. I love it. Yeah, the um, the, uh, the the vocal. It's I, I'm I'm still after many 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 years. I'm still getting used to James becoming this badass singer. Right. He has become this monster vocalist. I mean, he could front. Leonard Skinnerd, he could front. He he's a fucking great, like not a rock and roll. He could sing anything at this point. I really feel strongly about that. So I agree. the work ethic on just Metallica, not James particular. This the band working so hard to make the record they feel like they need to make at this point in their careers. To use your word, so yeah, and they're 
they're an interesting animal because I have to. I have to. Well, first of all, you're you're right about James. That I the, my, one of my least favorite Metallica records is very controversial. Is Kill Them All because it's great, but James didn't know how to sing yet. So uh, I think he'd be the first to admit that. But now, but now he sounds amazing. But uh, but they're all they're interesting because I, I you know I go you know people ask me all the time. Like we were talking about just the other day. Like you know somebody said I really like Saint Anger. I go I like Saint Anger a lot too. It's a you know drum. The snare sound is a little unusual, uh, but I like it. But there, you know, even when you go to like load and reload, a lot of people like don't like those records. Like, you got to remember where those guys' heads were at when they're making those records, and they're all about what their influences are at the time. Obviously, the first four records, they're all you know, new Shiv metal, you know, all that sort of stuff. So those records sounded like that, and then the Black Album was kind of more. You know, they started creeping in with more of the Thin Lizzy and Rainbow, and you know, the the '70s sort of stuff they liked, and that was really what Load and Reload became because you you put in more like some Boyster Cult in there and some, you know, more, definitely more Thin Lizzy and even some like Bob Seger and some of the stuff that they covered on the record before that kind of kind of was in there. And that was just their influence. And same thing you look at look at um, San Anger, they were, you know, they were super into System of Down and all those kind of bands. So so that's kind of whatever they're listening to at the time is where the music goes. And they've gotten back to that on really the last three records where they kind of went back to it. In fact, Prior to Death Magnetic, Lars called me up and said, hey, do you have some copies of that new British heavy metal compilation that, that we did? I go, yeah, can you send I me had, a couple? Like, I had James that on cassette. The- I had that on cassette. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, we, uh, so I would go, yeah, because like I said, lost it. And they wanted to kind of reconnect with that world. Because, you know, at that point, they hadn't reconnected for a while. And, and that's, I think, kind of launched these last, last three records. They got really back into their early influences. You know, James you know, wearing tank t-shirts and, you know, which fine t-shirts. And I remember he, he was asking me once, like, hey, can, like, this is, I guess the Death Magnetic Tour, but he was, he was making a, a battle vest, a metal, he's, can you yeah. me some patches? I'm like, sure. <laughs> he's got the Holocaust patch. Yeah. No, he's, he's got, got all the Holocaust fucking stuff, Holocaust right? patch on there, man. It, so, half his fans don't know who that is. I think half his fans. Half, probably 80%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, Metallica, of course, is obviously in a very unique position uh, to Brian's point. They they have the luxury of being able to do that. A lot of bands that don't have the legacy that they have, if they took a left turn, the label would go, what the hell are you doing? And they'd either be dropped or the records wouldn't sell or it would be the end of their career. But Metallica is very unusual in the sense that they're free to do whatever the hell they want. I mean, they came back from Lulu. So yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. And well, so, not only Lulu, but that crazy movie that they put out that was that hardly anybody knows about because I'm uh, same thing I was talking about this the other night about it because that was the first thing that Ray Fiddleman did. He did the music for that it, that movie through the never. It, it's not yeah. very good. The, the live stuff is phenomenal, but the the narrative is weird. Um, but Fiddleman did the did the mixing on it. I remember I went to the premiere in New York and those guys were there. It sounded so great. I said, I don't know who did the mixing, but he should do your next record. So he's done the, la- the next three. So yeah, uh, I'm sure, I was one of many people that said that they should do that. But uh, yeah, I feel yeah, like that, that, I, 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 you're a good guy to like just kind of seal my question, answer this question. Do you do you know for sure if Greg is actually helping them write write material? Well. So what a good producer or engineer does is I don't I don't know that he's I don't think he's writing anything. I mean, those guys have a, they, the way they've been writing for years is kind of the same way. They do demos of yeah. riffs. 
They give them all large, large pieces of them all together. Uh, they're really long because there's a lot of really good riffs. Um, but I think what, what Greg does, and I've been in the, in the studio with those guys, I think what he does, as any good engineer will do, is they go, well, maybe this part, you know, maybe you want to transition, and just little subtle notes on stuff that they might not have thought about. But I don't think he's writing a riff or a lyric or even a, even a melody line. I don't really think he's he's involved in that way because they, they, they've kind of been doing that that the same way for all these years, I don't think it would change. Yeah. I think more to, to kind of doctor my question a little bit, I feel like, uh, cause you know, just seeing footage on whatever YouTube or even, you know, different places. Cause some of their, like you can watch them in their rehearsal room and Greg is sitting there oh, and yeah. there's just parts going on. And he's like, you know, got a pad and pencil and a little laptop and he's going, play that part four times, play this one. You know, he's like helping arrange or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, def definitely. I mean, uh, yeah. Bob Rock was the, was the same way as yeah. well. And it just working on arrangements and thinking things that they might not have thought about. Well, maybe this, maybe that part could go here or, or could go there. So, yeah, that, I think any really good engineer, you want them to be kind of the, you know, however oh, many, yeah. many members of the band, the fifth guy, the fifth band member. You know, I mean, Martin Birch was that way with all the great records we did, you know, Maiden and Rainbow and Deep Purple and everything else. Good, really good producers will sit there and, and we'll have, you know, I've produced a bunch of records and, you know, I can't write anything, but I would do the same thing. It's like, hey, that, you know, that, like sing this part a little bit differently or, you know, maybe that one, maybe get in that one part, you know, one bar early or something. Just little things like that, that just subtly, and they may work and they may not work, you know, but I think as, if you're a good producer engineer, you want to, uh, you you want to kind of have that autonomy, especially a guy like Craig that you know he played, so you know he knows. Oh yeah, he knows. Yeah, how he works. can. He knows how to write songs. He, sure. can, he knows how to write a pop song, a metal song. He's yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of his, and uh, have had some great moments hanging with him. I've oh, written. Awesome. I've ridden in the back suit, back seat of his '66 uh, Lincoln Continental color gold with suicide doors. I went to Rhino Bucket rehearsal. This is probably 90. And I uh, stole George's guitar and played all their songs with them at their rehearsal. And they were like, I think you're our biggest fan. Anyway, that's the story. I, I, I might argue that I might have been. But I, I'm not a guy that when I go to shows. I usually hang in the back. I'm not really an upfront guy. But yeah. Rhino Bucket, man, when they would play Coconut Teaser, I'd be upfront just banging, headbanging away. Awesome. They're uh, they're still amazing. I love George to death, and we're fairly fairly close. Um, do, let's talk about Ghost. Let's talk about because you're talking about Ghost. They you gave them their own chapter about how close you were, and how and how involved you were in like sort of like being this guy that was about to, and then all of a sudden this, and it seems to be a recur reoccurring theme for you to be this close and get in good and get on a fucking plane and go to their house. And then the next thing you know, it's like, what? Tell yeah, us a little I mean, bit I about. Mean, yeah, that, that happens. So yeah, the ghost thing is, is an interesting story because, uh, so we were distributing a label called rise above, uh, for the U S and one of the guys in the UK worked for us. And it was also the, the we from cathedrals label. And so they had a bunch of really cool stuff, but you know, they would send me, you know, their, the stuff when they had it like, Hey, here's our next batch releases, you know, just to send it to you. What do you think? 
So one of them was Ghost, the first Ghost record they sent to me. And I listened to it. I go, oh, my God, this is incredible. So I call, immediately called Will. And I go, dude, this Ghost record is, is phenomenal. He's like, really? You think so? It's just a, it's a side project for a bunch of guys from, like, death and black metal bands. I go, no, this there's something here. Like, this isn't just, like, a side project. This record is phenomenal. Like, out of the, especially when it came out. Like what they were doing, like very old school, you know, merciful fate meets voice or cult kind of, very melodic, you know, always the lyrics are super satanic. And it just had a, 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 a like a, almost like a 70, 70s, 80s feel to it that we nobody was really doing at that time. But I just thought it was amazing. So the first thing I do is send it to my friends like James Hetfield and Charlie Benante and, you know, a bunch of these guys and Selmo got a hold of it and they all started going crazy. In fact, I sent it to Headfield because I, I I had a feeling he would like it. He sent me his email, and it was Ghost was the he- was on the headline of like literally a hundred exclamation points after that. So I told Tobias that, and to, you know, Metallica's one of his favorite bands. He he couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah, I think the quote in the book is like, uh, "I won't I won't take a plane over there to hang out yeah. with you. I'll just float across oh, the yeah. river on the this email from James." Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Fucking great. I fell um, out of my chair when I read that. <laughs> yeah, but I, uh, you know, so then it then it got, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, there there's a huge, huge buzz happening, which I, you know, I knew was going to happen. And then out of the blue, I mean, it's like 50,000 records. It was really good at that time, but still for an independent oh, yeah. record, you know. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, these major labels just start, start going crazy. Like all of a sudden, both Warner Brothers and, and Universal are like doing this, Insane bidding wars, part partly politics about who was involved in it because the, the NRI had left Warner Brothers to start his own thing, and he had signed a bunch of people. Warner Brothers, so it was, a, it was a, a bit of that going on as well. But it just it, it the bidding war became insane, and I was you know in there trying to sign the band early on because I could see where they could get really big, but I was also very fearful that if they if they go to a major label directly, they could fuck. I've seen it happen a million times. They could fuck that up really bad. I love this band so much. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to see that happen. So I was trying to, to negotiate a deal where we do at least like one more record. Um, you know, a, a bit uh, uh, selfishly too, because I, I love the band so much. Um, but it just worked out where it, it went crazy. And then Rick Sales, who manages Slayer and Gojira, and he's a very good friend of mine. You know, he, he ended up managing the band, which is good. Because at least I knew, you know, Rick knows how to work all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Talk to him about the deal because they got a ridiculously stupid deal, which is the other thing that scared me, too, because like they got the kind of deal like if they don't come out and sell, you know, 250,000 records, they're done. Like they're done. And that's the end of it. I didn't I didn't want to see any of that stuff happen because I've seen it happen so many times before. But to Rick's credit and, and Kristen at at, uh, at their management company, they did a really incredible job of 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 managing through that whole thing you know making a record uh having the expectations having the gigantic advance and you know and not having the, the original fans turn completely turn their back on the band and to, and to be fair tobias he's the obviously the main guy's a really incredibly smart guy uh and he's you know probably the biggest reason why they they are where where they're at is because he's smart he knows what he's doing and he's cultivated this amazing thing but the one thing i love about ghost and you don't get this a lot is you're either love them or you hate them there's really no in between there's very few people that go yeah they're okay it's mostly like i absolutely love them or i can't stand them it's like they're and that's 
And I love that because it's a, it's a reaction, right? You want a reaction. You don't want, I don't want to have put out a record and go, yeah, it's okay. We'll give it three and a half out of five stars, something like that. And then you're, you're in mediocre land and it means nothing. But you want somebody to go, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Or I don't like, I don't, I don't, well, I don't like it at all. So that's, uh, you know, that's kind of where Ghost is. Although they, they, I have converted quite a few people. Uh, when they opened for Iron Maiden, that was a, I think that was a huge uh, point in their career because, you know, they were kind, you know, they're moving up the, the ranks and doing their thing, but they still had the, you know, some people liked them, some people really hated them. I took a few friends, but they went to, I'm an Iron Maiden fanatic, so I probably went to 10 of those shows when they played in the U.S. And I, and I, made sure that some of my friends did not like Ghost or didn't get it. I said, go early. I promise you, you will either. If you don't like it, fine. You, you blame me and I'll buy a bunch of drinks or whatever. Uh, but go early. And, and they got a lot of con- conversions. And you could see it in the crowds, too, because typically they come out, uh, like, you know, they're, they're fans up front. are like, yeah, this is really great. They're wrestling on especially Iron Maiden audience. It's like, yeah, whatever. But by, you know, you'd see halfway through the show, like, oh, this is kind of good. So there's a little bit more of a reaction. And by the end of the show, you look at the crowd and like 80% of them have their you know, hands in the air and stuff. So yeah, great band. I mean, it, and I, it, it, there was a point in, I mentioned in the book where it really kind of, kind of bummed me out. The music business kind of bummed me out on that one. Cause I love that band so much. I really wanted to work with them. And when we didn't, there was a minute where I was like, I'm just fucking sick of this stuff, you know, but, but I think if they had not gone on to the success, I would have been really bummed out about it. But they've done amazing. Oh, yeah. Continue amazing. They're very nice. And they're taking them on a Martha out on the road here in the U.S. Please go see it. Tour started yesterday. They're playing sheds all, all over the country. It's a great package. So, uh, so yeah, it's all good. Tell us, what, what is your opinion on the, you know, health of, of metal? My, I've got a 15-year-old son who's turning me on to bands that I would have never known existed because I'm old and I'm set in my ways and I'm not, ne- I'm not necessarily exploring much anymore, but one of your bands, 200 stab wounds is a band that he loves. And through him, I've discovered 200 stab wounds, uh, uh, fugitive out of Texas is a great band. It seems to me like there is a healthy climate for metal and it's being led by this new generation uh, so talk to me first about 200 Stab Wounds and then the metal, the the new generation of metal bands as a whole. Yeah, you're 100% right. I'm, I'm glad you brought them up because I was going to bring them up at, at some point. Um, yeah, I, I, first of all, I think that the health of metal is is incredible. I mean, it might, I don't know that it's been in a better position long term than it is now where you've got, still got the legends still out there for the most part at a high level. You've got the next set of bands, just like we're talking about Amonomarth and Ghost and Lamb of God and Gojira and Mastodon and you know all these bands that are that are upping, you know, they're playing arenas now and they're upping their game. And now you've got this incredible scene of young bands, all in their mostly all in their 20s, that are coming out doing a wide variety of really incredible music. And it's kind of blowing me away by number one, how good they are. And number two, what the buzz is, and with this band with Twitter Stab Wounds, you know, we were trying to sign them, and there's a pretty good buzz on a bunch of different labels, and it was kind of a little more difficult than we thought it was going to be because they're, you know, they're they the buzz was out there, and so you know, we gave like never did the label we able to sign them. I, I, I said they're great, let's do it, and so we you know off, probably offered them a little bit more money than we were comfortable with, but we felt there's something here. So then fast forward to they played uh, Psycho Fist here in uh, in Vegas. 
uh, summer before last. And I, I've only seen the video stuff, and yeah, you can only get so much of watching a video on YouTube, right? So I go, I'm old, I've seen, I don't know, 6,000, 7,000 shows, nothing much new really excites me. I can go, oh yeah, this band's cool, that band's cool. But I was floored by how good they were, just floored. Like, they reminded me so much of, like, where like early Cannibal Corpse and just the energy, the energy from the crowd, the energy they have. And they're very much crossed between Cannibal Corpse and Power Trip, where they've got that, you know, very thrashy elements kind of Power Trip Fugitive you mentioned as well. Um, Blake, who's a phenomenal guy, Power Trip and Fugitive. Yeah, both of those bands are playing in Dallas on uh, the 19th, which I'm, I'm going to go to that show, Southside Ballroom, in, in between the Metallica shows. But yeah, there, there's something really great happening there. The buzz on them is incredible. I just we're about to release the new record fairly soon. It's really good. It's, it's the right record for them to make. It's still very underground sounding, which is great. But the buzz on them is insane. And the, you know, the the they're so incredible live. In fact, that you know that show they're doing in in Texas, they're you know they're actually playing with the Monomarth in Omaha, which I was trying to get to, but I don't think I can. Which is really great because I didn't even know Monomarth or anybody from that camp knew who they were. But they're Monomarth playing a couple off dates, so we're playing with them. And then Metallica invited them because Metallica is doing these these weekends in a few cities where they're having a bunch of bands play uh, on the in between the Saturday in between the Friday and Sunday shows, and then they're also playing the parking lot. I think on the Sunday show, and they have our Stabboons is doing the show in Dallas, which is. I didn't know anybody at, at Q Prime or Metallica had anything. I said I, I'm overdue to uh, send a text to, to Lars uh, and just saying thank you for you know helping us out with this band. But yeah, they're really great. I, I, I'm so excited about them. And there's so many other bands too coming up. There's you know there's Capra, there's Ingested. Uh, we just put out this record that kind of came out of nowhere. It's a little bit older guys that kind of been around called Zenith Passage. And we, you know, we weren't really sure. They put out one record before, like years ago. They kind of reformed. We weren't really sure what was going to happen. And it's like the number fifty-five record on the Billboard uh, on the Billboard chart. Just the number two on the, in, on the metal chart. Number three on the into five on the into something like that on the independent charts. I don't know. And you know, the record's incredible. It's, it's very much like uh, it's Watchtower esque. I'll say maybe it's very okay. progressive. Uh, but the reaction on that record has just kind of blown me away because I thought it was really great, but I didn't realize that reaction was going to be like this. And you're seeing that with a lot of these bands coming out. You know, another band, which is another one of these bands, you either get it or you don't, is Sleep Token. And that band's friggin' massive, just out of nowhere. Their last record came out on iTunes. I was looking at the iTunes chart, and they were like number three on the overall iTunes chart, which is just kind of mind-boggling. You know, there's another band called Black Braid that's, you know, this uh, single Native American guy that, that's just in, incredible. Like, the buzz on them also is incredible. So I, I can't remember the last time I've seen where metal, especially new metal bands, there's so many of them out there with such a big buzz and, like, doing, like, real numbers when it comes to, to you know, albums and chart position stuff. Because a lot of times it would take us 10, 15 years sometimes to break bands. And now you're seeing these bands you know, get to that point a lot quicker. So, so yeah, to answer your question finally is, yeah, I think the state of metal right now is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I, my son plays that 200 stab wounds and I, the drummer is who stands out to me. It's just like, Oh my God, this guy is ridiculously good. Yep. And we're huge fugitive fans in this house. We listen to anything Blake Ibanez does. We've had Blake on the show a couple of times and he's a great guy, total sweetheart, uh, immensely talented 
and I like what he's doing with Fugitive. So yeah, I, um, I'm in Dallas a lot because we. Uh, I have an apartment out there because we deal with a lot of bands out there and King Diamonds out there. So I've become good friends with both uh, Blake and and Nick from from Power Trip and well Blake's from Fugitive. Chris, great guys, and it's really fun because uh, they're you know same they're younger guys, you know late twenties, and it's yeah. just fun to talk to them about music and you know where they where they where they're at. And, you know, yeah, they're super great guys, and uh, yeah, and that Fugitive Two Hundred show, I'm really looking forward to on the 19th so once yeah, again i feel like these bands are are under the banner of crossover i feel like they're yeah. very in touch with when we talk to blake it's like you know possessed comes up uh, and hardcore bands come up <laughs> yep. and, and like the the marriage of all of that is is like it's going into his ears through cooking in his brain and coming out of his hands when he writes a song and and i'm just ecstatic that i mean i'll confess i'll be the first guy to stand up and go there's so much new stuff coming out i i my head is spinning i can't keep up with any of it it's just too and like dave said i i'm not searching for it anymore because i'm just like what and i fall asleep you know it's just old man shit, i guess but you know it, it, i'm just so happy that that's that this is the reality and this is where we are i want to before i before I, Dave can get another word and I want to do this. This is kind of full circle now. And I believe you mentioned it in the later book where, you know, that quote from someone like, yeah, me and my friends used to just go to the record stores after school and on the weekends. And we would, we wouldn't even, we either looked at the cover and I go, I bet that's on metal blade and turn it around and it's on metal. And they would, we would just buy anything and everything that was on metal blade whether you know it looked odd or or you know that we thought that ooh, thank you grade. thank you yeah yeah for a first grader painted <laughs> thank <first> you <laughs> yeah thank, I, that goes back to you right. uh, a first grader painted this album cover and i'm gonna buy it anyway so <laughs> yeah pretty much it's almost yeah. kind of what we looked for if it had bad cover art just some dragon with a lady in its mouth or fire or just some like big dumb evil devil or well, yeah i mean that and that goes back to you know when I, I grew up in the 70s and you know kind of before you know it's hard to discover bands so half the time i just go to the record stores and just look for covers that look like metal bands in fact I, the first time i ever heard i saw rush i saw this cover for 2112 and i go oh that looks like it might be metal and i just i bought it it's the same thing with a bunch of other album covers of bands and i thought oh that made like triumph or whatever it was that i didn't know who they were i just thought oh, that might be metal and most of the time it was so i kind of carries over i think to the present day and it's just you know still obviously we're selling a lot of vinyl these days which is great but it's still the cover no matter if it's vinyl or whatever it is it's still it's still super important i think jason's point was that beyond the cover art what we used to look for the stamp of credibility was the metal yeah. blade logo yeah. it was like forget everything else does it say metal blade records on it i'm taking it home if it does <laughs> no that's that's yeah that's very nice and and again i appreciate that and, i mean look i'm just lucky the fact that what i like other people seem to like i mean it's it's really as simple as that uh it, it could if my taste wasn't very good i guess i well, we probably wouldn't be talking now but luckily whatever metal, i like other people seem to like and metal blade so, is is reason. yeah metal blade is and was um, and I'm sorry to interrupt you if I, if oh, I no, I'm done. the, the, the important thing to me 
to realize because we don't we've you've been on here two fucking hours already so listen yeah i just noticed that yeah yeah (laughs) we're gonna catch it happens and we appreciate it very very much but i just want to say that that you didn't warn me it might take for a while so i cleared some time (laughs) cool we appreciate again appreciate it is the fact that that metal blade is now and always has been um a developmental label someone who is ready to nurture from the ground up and have give advice and talk to a young band or or a, a group of older guys or whatever to talk about what might be and could be and not limited to the best ideas to uh keep your uh integrity your your uh, viability your the way to move the next move for what it is we have even if it's a demo band or something that you want to reissue or something that you want to build upon that's it's a it's a creative uh stamp that you've got for um your ability to sort of pick and choose and then sometimes what you pick and choose someone just has more money than you do so well, yeah, I mean, there, there's always that, which, you know, that, that, that is what it is, but yeah, I mean, look, the most important thing and the most fun thing for me, and another reason why I don't want to sell this thing is that it's, it's always been from day one. It's just turning people on to music they haven't heard. And so, you know, finding a band, finding the band, developing the band, seeing people like the band, then going on to see them have a career and have them be able to like make, you know, actually make money off of music and, you know, how, you know, a house and a car and wives and kids. And I mean, that's the most fulfilling thing to me. It's just, it's great to see that, that from, you know, from step one to, to you know, however many years band, I think that's why, you know, bands like Cannibal Corpse and Amon Marth and have spent their whole career with, with us yeah. uh, because of some of that. And that's the most gratifying thing to me. And that's, you know, one of the most important things to me. And, you know, we try to do things the right way. We're one of the few labels that actually pays all their artists, which costs a lot of money, by the way, but, but it's good. They deserve it, and they should it should be that way. I wanted to ask real quick, and then we'll let you go. Uh, you keep you you keep mentioning your staff. How many people work at Metal Blade Records? I want to get a sense of. I want to understand. You know, Multiple offices though. Multiple yeah. So offices. we've got. Yeah. So we've got. Um, I hope I get the math all right. I might be off by one or two, but we've got about. Uh, I think we've got about eighteen people in the U.S. And most of them are still in Los Angeles. I don't know why they want to stay there, but uh, I, I had to get out of there with the traffic and everything else. But they're mostly still in LA. But a couple are scattered. We, we've got somebody in New York now and a couple other spots. Uh, we've got uh, one person in Canada. We've got two people in the UK. I believe our office in Germany, which is our home office in uh, Europe, is now consists of, I think, 11 people. And then we've got uh, you know a, a half a person in uh, Australia. Uh, and uh and i think we're gonna we're starting to do more stuff again in japan which was a really great market first for a long time we, had, we actually had metal in japan for many years but then the, the the whole state of everything switched over there where it used to be import bands were really big and now it's more domestic stuff so we're getting a foothold in there so whatever that amounts to like 30 some odd people i guess yeah yeah okay fair enough i just wanted a ballpark because i i had no idea I mean, obviously, you're smaller than some big corporate corporation, but um, yeah. But you know, we also that's cut you off. But we, you know, we also utilize our distributor. Uh, it's the the Orchard, which is owned by Sony, and we use them 
you know, for like radio people and a bunch of other others. So we've got a whole staff of people over there that we work with that help us too. So it's so one thing people say, what do you need an independent label for? What do you need a label for anymore, right? Well, in essence, that's true. Anybody could make their own music and put it out there, but you need people to promote it. And kind of where we've evolved as a label is, you know, we still provide all the same services, accounting and, you know, helping bands, you know, find recording and dealing with the managers and all that sort of stuff. But the bulk of what we do in terms of our marketing promotion, we have a huge uh, social media staff. And, you know, that's really become the lifeblood for us is, is getting this stuff out there on whatever means it is, because we've, we've learned that it's a direct conduit to the fans. And we, you know, we help the bands with their socials as well, because, you know, before you would rely on a magazine or a radio station or a third party entity to get the word out there of what's going on. But now we can go direct to the fans. And look, we still need those third party people as well. But, but in essence, when you sign with a, a label, you know, you're getting an army of at least 150 people that are going to be helping you, helping your band to get where you need to go as opposed to doing it yourself where then you have to hire them all out. So, right. Anyway. Right. That's my dog, my soapbox now. In, in, a, in effect, it's the new version of tape trading. Kind of sort of. I mean, <laughs> look, from my perspective, things haven't changed a lot in the 41 years I've been doing it. Still, the baseline is about, you know, signing bands we like and putting it out there to the world so that hopefully other people. That's where I was going with the developmental. It's like that's your motive day one. It's still the same motive. You just have a slightly bigger machine able to do it. And yeah. And, and to your point, sorry to cut you off, but to your point earlier about, you know, all these great bands and how they, you know, kind of the crossover thing. And what I've always told bands is that it's okay to have your influences, but don't sound like them. Like we have kill switch engage. We have black dog. We don't need a copycat of that. We don't need a lamb of God copycat band. Like it's okay to have those bands as, as your influences or whatever it is. But take those influences and, and make the music you want to make as a, as, a, as a human, like what you would want to hear from a band and make sure that it's not not doesn't sound too much like the other bands. And like all these bands we just mentioned, they're in tons of influences. And you can say like, oh, they take part from here, part from there, part from there. But what comes out is all original. And that's, I think, the big key and why you're seeing so many of these bands now being so good, because that's what they're doing. Like they don't sound like anybody else. You can't say, you know, Black Raid doesn't sound like anybody else, really. They have their own sound or even sleep talking, all this crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, uh, can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today, probably more time than you planned uh, on spending. It, it didn't I, feel like it was that long, though, so that's well, good. good. Then that that then we accomplished our goal. We like to make these things very conversational, and before you know it, a couple of hours have gone by. I do want to close by saying, uh, number one, thank you for your time today. Number two, thank you for all you've done for heavy metal. I appreciate and applaud your tenacity, your perseverance. I love the fact that you take such pride and ownership of the Metal Blade name and brand that you're not willing to sell it out as long as you're living and breathing. Uh, you're going to maintain control over this baby that you created and turned into a monster. And uh, I think we all benefit from that. So. Thank you for just doing what you do. It's an incredible success story. We didn't even get to the vodka or your museum or many, or the, many, many other the things. Antique mall store that That's you right. have there. We didn't talk about it. There's yeah. so many things. Yeah, I just, I'll, I'll just go to metalblade.com for all that good stuff. But I, appreciate, I, I appreciate all the kind of words. I mean, look, ultimately, I'm still just a fan. And that's, you know, I, I'm honored to be able to do this. And it's, you know, thanks to you guys and everybody else out there. I'm able, you're making me able to do it. 
Yeah. And real quick, where can people get your books? Also metalblade.com? Uh, yeah, so the books are anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, metalblade.com, a lot of books, a lot of like actual brick and mortar bookstores have it. So right. yeah, pretty much anywhere. But definitely Amazon or, or Metal Blade for sure has it. Okay, and the titles are Swing of the Blade, and the previous one is Swing, For the Sake, for the of, sake heavy of Heaviness. Metal. Correct. Yes, 2017 and 2023. Song. Brian Slagle, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner. With our guest today, Brian Slagle of Metal Blade Records on the Talk Louder podcast. Thank you, guys. 